You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. In his book, The Old Man and the Sea, Ernest Hemingway gave a definition of courage. He said this, he said, courage is grace under pressure. So he said, courage is grace under pressure. All of us face pressure in one form or another, whether it's uh, pressure at work, we face pressures at home, we face uh, pressures from family members and from our spouses, maybe even from your kids. Many of us face financial pressure, so we know what pressure is all about, and uh, these things can weigh heavily on us. Here in Acts chapter 21, what we're going to see is Paul the Apostle is under a lot of pressure in this situation he's in, but the way that he responds to that pressure is incredible. He responds with grace. He responds with generosity. He, he responds with love in the midst of a hostile situation. So the title of today's message is Grace Under Pressure. And as we come to Acts ch- chapter 21, we're, we're coming towards the end of a very long journey that we've been on. So far in the book of Acts, we've been following Christianity as it's developed from its earliest days, from the days of Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem, and we've seen how Christianity developed and spread throughout the world. By the way, I'm going to give a, a shameless plug for the history class I'm going to be teaching in the next month. So the, the deal is with that, if you were curious, okay, so here in the book of Acts, we see Jesus up until the gospel gets to Rome, but then what happened after that? What's the story with all the church councils? How do we get the Bible? All of these things. These are the kind of things we're going to be looking at and questions we're going to answer in that church history class. It's been one of the most enriching things for me in my seminary studies to study church history, so I would encourage you very much to get involved and uh, sign up for that church history class. But here in chapter 21, we are entering now into the final section of the book of Acts. This is a section from, verse, from chapters 21 to 28, roughly the last quarter of the book, which has been often called the sufferings of Paul. Because in this section, Paul the Apostle, the great missionary whose missionary journeys we've been following, he is now going to face a series of injustices and misfortunes. But in the end, we're going to see that God uses all of these things for good. And Paul is going to end up going to Rome throughout, through this uh, course of events. It was always one of Paul's dreams to be able to go to Rome and get to preach the gospel in Rome. Through all of this, he's going to end up having the opportunity to speak to kings and to rulers and ultimately even to the Caesar himself, the most powerful man in the world, and he's going to get to tell these people about Jesus. Those are all good things. Those are amazing things, glorious things. But here's the thing, the path that, le- that leads to those good things It leads through difficulty and hardship. It leads through pain and suffering. You see, isn't that interesting that God had this good plan for Paul's life, a plan to use him in amazing ways, and even a plan to fulfill some of Paul's greatest dreams and desires. But yet the path that led to all of those good things was a path that was tainted with, it led through difficulty and injustice and hostility. And so whether you're Paul the Apostle or you're you, in the moment when you're going through those kind of things, you have the hope that things are going to turn out well, but you don't know in the moment, do you? You don't know where it's all going to end up. You don't know how it's all going to pan out. But yet the way that Paul walks through these things, not knowing how it's going to end up, that's incredible. He shows incredible grace under pressure. You know, it's been said that people are like sponges. What's on the inside, what's really on the inside comes out when we're squeezed. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm squeezed, I don't like what comes out of me. 
But uh, the theme of this section is radical generosity and radical graciousness. That's what Paul the Apostle is going to show. Not only does Paul exemplify these things, but I want to tell you today that this is God's desire for how all of us should live. The question is, how did Paul get to this place that he was able to have these qualities, this radical generosity, this radical graciousness? And why are these things important? Why should we even want to have these things in our lives? And lastly, how can we get these things? So to bring you up to speed on what's going on, if you're just joining us here in Acts chapter 21, after spending 10 years working as a missionary in what's now Turkey and Greece, Paul the Apostle is now on his way to Jerusalem. He believes that God has called him to go to Jerusalem, and he's going there for two main reasons. The first reason is he's going there to bring and deliver a gift of financial aid. He's got a bunch of money that he's going to take to the Christians in Jerusalem. Because at this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem. It was a difficult time financially. People were struggling to put food on the table. And so Paul, moved by compassion for these people and the situation, he rallied the churches that he was kind of the overseer over. These are churches in Turkey and Greece. He rallied them to donate money to help out the people of Jerusalem during this difficult time. And now he's coming to Jerusalem to deliver it in person. The second reason he's going to Jerusalem is that he wants to put an end to a perceived division between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. See, Paul's coming to Jerusalem really kind of to reach across the aisle, so to say, to make a gesture of unity and love from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians because many of the Jewish Christians believe that uh, Gentiles can't even legitimately be Christians. There was this division, but it was mostly from one side. It was the Jewish Christians had an issue with the Gentile Christians, so Paul's coming as a representative to make peace between them. Paul has been now making his way to Jerusalem. This is what we saw last week as he began this journey. He's traveling with a fairly large group of friends, including one of them is Luke, who is the author of this book. He's uh, writing this now as having seen these things himself. He's part of this journey. And as we pick up the story, uh, starting in verse 15, but we're going to start reading from verse 17, we see Paul finally arrive in Jerusalem. It says in verse 17, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So they get this warm welcome in Jerusalem. Things seem to be going okay, but yet there's still this underlying tension which comes out in the next section from verse 20 it says this and and they said to him verse 20 they said to him you see brother how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed they're all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come So this meeting really is an interesting situation. Here you have James and Paul, and these men represent two different Christianities. Now, there weren't two different Christianities in reality, but in perception, there were. Neither neither James or Paul wanted it to be this way, but this is how it was. There was a division, at least a perceived division, between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. The Gentile Christians looked to Paul as their leader, And the Jewish Christians looked to James as their leader. James was the lead pastor we see here at the church in Jerusalem. But not only that, he was really the recognized leader 
of the Jewish Christian community around the world. In fact, if you read the the book of James in the New Testament, you'll notice that James addresses that letter specifically to Jewish Christians. That's because Jewish Christians look to him for leadership. James 1.1, he begins like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Do you see what I'm saying? He's writing to Jewish Christians, the Jewish diaspora around the world. So there was this division, at least in the minds of people at that time, there were two kinds of Christianity. There was a Jewish Christianity with James as its leader, and there was a Gentile Christianity with Paul as its leader. And so really try to understand the significance of this meeting. Now James and Paul are sitting down together, and they're talking about what to do about this perception, which both of them believe is wrong, that there's some kind of division between them, that Christianity is somehow divided. And James mentions that rumors have been going around in Jerusalem about Paul. And I wonder how many of you, you've experienced that. You've had, you know what it feels like to have people spread rumors about you that aren't true. Mark Twain, he said this, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the, or sorry, while the truth is still putting on its shoes. So a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. The rumors going around about Paul were that he was teaching Jewish people to forsake Jewish culture and not to circumcise their children. That wasn't actually true. Paul wasn't doing that. What Paul was doing was he was telling Gentiles who wanted to become Christians that they didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to keep the dietary laws of Moses, the rituals of the Jews in order to be Christians. All they needed to do to be Christians and to be saved was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. And James actually agreed with that. They were on the same page. This had all been settled. If you remember back to Acts chapter 15, they had this big meeting in Jerusalem and they settled this issue once and for all. James and Paul both taught the same thing, that no one will be saved because of their religious observance or because of anything that they do. It's only through faith in what Jesus did for us. And so if anyone though wanted to continue practicing Jewish customs, well, then they're free to do that if they wanted to. Go for it. I mean, if you find them enriching, if you love the symbolism of it, if you like the tradition, then more power to you. But never think that it adds anything to your standing before God. That was settled once and for all by Jesus. In fact, we know that Paul wasn't against these Jewish customs because we actually read in Acts chapter 18 that in between his second and third missionary journeys, Paul underwent a Jewish ritual, probably a Nazarite vow, a Jewish ceremonial ritual. So these rumors about Paul, they weren't true, but many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem believed them. And for that reason, they didn't like Paul. They considered him an enemy of their culture and of their people. And here's what James suggests. He has a suggestion about how they approach this and what they do about it, starting in verse 23, chapter 21, starting in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. This is James speaking to Paul. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So here's, the, here's what's going on. Four men from the Jerusalem church had taken a Nazarite vow. If you want to know more about the Nazarite vow, read up on it in Numbers chapter 6. It's all laid out there for you what this vow was all about. This was an ancient Jewish ritual which was all about consecrating yourself, dedicating yourself wholly for a time to God. And this was usually done for a designated period of time. You might do this for a couple months or even for a year. There were a few people in the Bible who kept a Nazarite vow from birth and for their entire life. These were Samson and John the Baptist. During the time of this vow, a man would take this vow, and during the time that he was under this vow, he would not cut his hair. So he wouldn't trim his beard, he wouldn't trim his hair, and he wouldn't drink any wine, and he would keep himself ritually pure. It was a time of singular focus and dedication on God. This would be similar to what Christians do when we fast. And at the end of the vow, the person would then go into the temple for a ritual period of cleansing. This would last for seven days. And during the seven days, they would go to the temple every day and they would worship God. And one of the things they would do is that they would shave off all their hair and they would burn the hair. I don't know why they burn the hair, but uh, that, was, that was part of it. You burn the hair as a symbol of cleansing, as a symbol of, okay, I, I grew this out and now it's over. And then they would give offerings and they would make sacrifices to God. And doing this was actually pretty expensive because you had to take, think about this, you're taking a week off of work, so you're not working during that time. Plus the offerings and the materials for the sacrifices were very expensive. And so it was very common for people to look for wealthy people to sponsor them to take these vows. So James is saying, Paul, it would be a huge gesture on your part if you would pay for these four guys to go through this ritual, if you would sponsor them, and it'd be even bigger if you joined them in it and did it yourself. And if you did that, man, no one ever could ever accuse you of being against Jewish customs and traditions. An added benefit to this is that Paul would have seven days spent with these men in the temple, and they would get the chance to know him. They'd get the chance to talk with him and hear his heart for God. And if anyone ever said anything bad about Paul, these people would know him, and they'd be able to say, no, he's really not like that. So Paul says, okay, he'll go ahead and do this. He pays for these four men to do this ritual, and he joins in it himself. We'll continue reading from verse 27. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul is in the temple, he's worshiping, he's doing this ritual, and someone recognizes him. Now, you might wonder, how did he go this long without someone recognizing him? I mean, think about it. Back in these ancient times, people in Jerusalem had heard of Paul, but most people didn't know what he looked like. They didn't have cameras. They didn't have video. And so people had heard of Paul, maybe seen drawings or paintings of Paul, but very few people had actually seen Paul. And if you hadn't seen someone personally, you probably wouldn't know what they looked like. 
So Paul was able to keep some degree of anonymity and go about doing his business in Jerusalem without being recognized. But these people who recognized him, they were from Asia Minor, that's Western Turkey. This is the region where Paul has been working as a missionary for the past 10 plus years. And during that time that Paul's been there, many of the Jewish people in that region, he would remember he always starts out by going to the synagogue, meeting with the Jewish community, telling them about Jesus. Some of them receive Jesus as their Messiah, others reject his message. And Paul faced a lot of opposition, if you remember, from the Jews in that region. He was chased out of towns, he was beaten up, he was stoned. And so when these people see Paul in the temple and they recognize him, they freak out. This is public enemy number one, right? And so they grab him and they shout for others to come and assist them and they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple which was forbidden by Jewish religious law. They accuse Paul all in all of four things. The first thing is they accuse him of being against the Jewish people, of being an enemy of their nation. Secondly, they accuse him of being against the law of Moses. Third, they, they accuse him of being against this place which is the temple. And the last one is that they accuse him of intentionally defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile. Now, all of these accusations were false. See, in the days of Jesus, during this time, around the temple, it was signposted in both Greek and Latin. There was a sign which read, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple. Anyone caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. See, there was a designated area where Gentiles could go because some people came to Jerusalem. They were interested. Maybe they were interested in Judaism. Some people probably came as tourists. They wanted to see the temple. But as they uh, came, they could only come into one certain area called the Court of the Gentiles. And if they were to come any closer or go beyond any of the barricades, it was punishable by death. In fact, the Romans even were so sensitive to the Jews in this area of their religion that they allowed them to have this law that it was a capital crime for a Gentile to enter the temple court. Now look at how this crowd responds in verse 30. It says, All the city stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. People in the streets, they see that there's commotion happening on the temple court, and so they run over to see what's happening. People start coming out of their houses, knocking on their neighbor's doors, saying, hey, something's happening up on the temple, and the whole city descends upon the temple mount. Verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd and for the mob of the people following, crying out, saying, away with him. His crowd is just pummeling Paul with everything they've got. They're trying to kill him right there on the Temple Mount. You can imagine they're kicking him, they're strangling him, they're hitting him, they're probably looking for rocks to throw at him. They're on the Temple Mount next to the temple. The Romans had built a fortress, a military outpost, which was known as the Antonia Fortress. It was right next to the temple. 
And from the Antonia Fortress, the Roman troops are able to see this disturbance happening on the temple. And so the Roman soldiers rush in. They save Paul from this mob that's beating him and trying to kill him. They take Paul into custody, partly to calm down the crowd, partly to protect Paul from this crowd. In fact, they have to physically carry him out of that place. And the whole time, the people are shouting away with him. That's not in the sense of, get this guy out of here. It's in the sense of, Wipe him off of the face of the earth. We want to see this man dead. So let's finish out the chapter in verse 37. It says this. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the tribune, May I ask something of you? And he said, do you, do you know Greek? See, Paul asked him in Greek. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. So in the Roman Empire, Greek was the lingua franca. It was the common language that the different people groups in the empire used to communicate with each other. But there were regional languages as well. Of, uh, regional languages as well. For example, in Jerusalem, the common language at, at this time was not actually Hebrew. It was um, Aramaic. Okay, so Aramaic was actually the language of the Babylonians, the language of the Assyrians, and it was during the time of the exile that the Jewish people had picked up the Aramaic language, you know, being born there, uh, generations being born in Assyria and Babylon, and when they returned out of the exile, the Jewish people in Israel spoke Aramaic, and this was the common language that the people used, but they still learned Hebrew. Hebrew was still used. It was used in religious settings. It was used in the synagogues, the scriptures were still read in Hebrew. So Hebrew was really kind of a, a heart language in a sense that Hebrew was the language of their forefathers. They were sentimental about the Hebrew language even though most people didn't speak it on the streets. The Hebrew language had a special place in their hearts. Uh, to hear the Hebrew language would tug at their heartstrings. It would stir them up inside. Hebrew was the language of the prophets. It was the language of their scriptures. It was used in the synagogues by speaking to the people in the Hebrew language. Rather than the Aramaic language, Paul is making a statement, a statement that despite what they might think about him, he is proudly Jewish. He's reaching across the aisle, reaching out to these people in a way that would be specific to them. And notice the way Paul addresses them. He addresses them as brothers and fathers. These are terms of respect, terms of endearment. These are terms that communicate, I am one of you. We're going to look at what Paul said next week. As for today, I just want you to see the point of this section. The point of this section is that Paul is showing incredible generosity, incredible graciousness towards these people who have treated him so incredibly poorly. They have treated him so badly. And there, there's three ways in particular. I'll just run you through them again. First of all, Paul shows incredible generosity and incredible graciousness in that he, he took it upon himself to collect this gift of financial aid for these people in Jerusalem who don't even like him. Do you understand that? These people hate him. These people say nasty things about him. They spread rumors about him. They slander him. They, they defame his character. And what does Paul do? He says, you know what? I'm going to figure out a way to bless those people. 
These people who have treated him so badly, right? Here he is and he says, I'm going to find a way to help these people out. I'm going to go down there in person. They're struggling financially. I'm going to figure out how to help these people and bless them. I'm going to go there in person because I want them to know that I love them in spite of everything that they've done to me, the ways that they've treated me badly and spoken about me badly. I'm going to, in spite of that, extend a hand of friendship and do something to bless them. Now, isn't that radically generous? Isn't that radically gracious? That's not normal. That's not how people normally react. Here's the second one. The second thing Paul does is a radical act of generosity and graciousness. He pays for these four guys to take this vow in the temple. Now, this was expensive, probably paid it out of his own pocket. But more than that, this is something that he was asked to do. Why? To prove himself to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, how many of you in a similar situation would have said, you know what? This is terrible. This is terrible that these people are trying to make me prove myself to them, that they won't take my word for it. These people should be proving themselves to me, that they're sorry for what they did to me, right? These people would disrespect me, and then rather than apologizing, they would demand that I prove myself to them? How how rude can you be? If they're not going to take my word for it, then I'm not going to do anything. I don't feel the need to prove myself to anybody. I think that's how many of us would have reacted. Maybe many of you say, yeah, that's about right. That's what I would have said. But Paul, once again, that's not how he reacts. He, He reacts radically generously, radically graciously. And the third one is this. After having been beaten, kicked, choked, falsely accused of something he didn't even do, probably people yelling all kinds of terrible things at him, Paul stands up and he speaks to this crowd and he speaks to them lovingly and he speaks to them politely. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't show any anger or bitterness to them. Now, we would, we would feel like, hey, it would be kind of understandable if you did, if you were a little bit bitter about, against these people because they just punched you in the face and tried to kill you, right? But Paul, in spite of this, he's radically generous. He's radically gracious. Where does this come from? How, how do you become a person like that? How does Paul become that kind of person that he can live and act in this way? The, the short answer is this. The reason Paul was able to be radically generous and radically gracious is because he understood that God had been radically generous and radically gracious to him. Earlier in his life, do you realize Paul was just like these people? He was one of them. He would have been in that same crowd throwing rocks and trying to punch himself. He, he had been so self-righteous. He looked down on other people. He treated other people badly. He attacked and slandered people just like they're doing to him now. That was him some years ago. But something happened in Paul's life that changed everything. There was a realization that he came to that changed all of this. See, Paul came to realize that he wasn't actually as good as he thought he was. He came to realize that that all of his high thoughts about himself, they were actually pride. And not only were they pride, but they were actually completely unfounded. It was a delusion. It wasn't true. He came to realize that the reality was he was actually a sinner. That he had no basis for thinking he was better than anyone else. He came to realize that here all along he thought that God thought he was the best person in the world. And now he realizes he's not even right with God at all. See, this realization was a turning point in Paul's life. But, but see, that wasn't all. At the same time, he came to another realization. At, at the same time that he came to a realization about his own pride and his own sin, he came to another realization, that's this, that even though he was sinful, God loved him. 
God loved him. God hadn't given up on him. You see that God had been incredibly generous to him, incredibly gracious. God had traded his throne in heaven for a wooden cross. God Almighty had lost everything for his sake. God had traded his crown of glory for a crown of, a crown of thorns in order to save an undeserving person like him. You see, it was the generousness of God. It was the graciousness of God, which Paul had been on the receiving end of. And when he realized that, it changed his heart. How was Paul able to be so generous to these people? How was Paul able to be so gracious to these people? Here's why. Because he understood that he was just like them. And God was gracious and generous to him. And as a result, he became a radically generous person. And you see, that, that is what God has been to you. That's what he's been to me. And this is what God is calling us to be. And this is what will happen when you really get a vision and an understanding and a grasp of the gospel. See, one of the passages in the Bible that I, for many years, I've found it to be one of the most intriguing, one of the most challenging, uh, at the same time incredibly beautiful, but at the same time just incredibly challenging because it's so lofty. It's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 in what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Is Jesus speaking, and, and I'll just give you some excerpts, but you should read the whole thing. But here's, here's the part I'm really talking about. Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And then he goes on and he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love people who love them. And if you do good to people who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Sinners even do that. In other words, there's absolutely nothing distinct or distinctive or unique or special about being nice to people who are nice to you or of giving to people who will give back to you. Everybody does that. What's, what's different, what's unique, what's distinctive about that? But here's something different. Check this out. In verse 35, Jesus goes on. He says this, but love your enemies and do good, and here's the big part, and give, expecting nothing in return. Give, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I don't know about you, but I find that so lofty, so intriguing. I, I feel like that's, that's a huge goal, right? Jesus, what Jesus is describing here is something so incredibly different. He's calling us to a life of radical graciousness and radical generosity. Do you know what the word radical means, by the way? You know, we generally think of radical as being, meaning extreme, like way out there, but that's not really what it means. The word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root, so here, here's what it means to be radically this or that. It means that it's deeply rooted in you. It's part of who you are at the core of your being. It's part of your character. And so to be radically generous, to be radically gracious means that those things are so deeply rooted in you that they're at the core of who you are. They're at the core of your being. A lot of times when we talk about generous, uh, the word generous the only thing that comes to people's mind is money, right? Like, oh, generosity, we must be talking about money. But see, to be radically generous at the core of who you are, to be radically generous, to be pervasively generous, what that means is that uh, it's, 
when you're radically generous at the core of your being, then you're not just generous with your money, you're generous in all areas of your life. You see, money is only one form of currency that you could say. What is a currency? Currency is a way of trading value or giving value, right? And so there are several currencies that we have that we uh, share or give to give away value. One of them is money, but uh, there are many other currencies that we exchange. There's time and efforts. There's attention, a physical, emotional space, physical presence. And in this sense, there is an economy that exists between people in their relationships many times. And this is why you often hear people talk about people owing them, right? Like, I did something for this person, they really owe me one. Or I really owe you because you did something for me, right? Uh, We talk about people being indebted to another person or owing someone because of something they've done for them. That's what we're talking about. On the other hand, right, uh, there, there are many people who owe you, right? Like, for example, if there's someone that you've done a lot for, you say, that person owes me. I've really done a lot for them. They're indebted to me. On the other hand, another way that people owe you is you can say, this person really hurt me. They, they wronged me in some way, and they need to make it up to me. They owe me, and, and they need to make up for what they did. And you can kind of hold that over their head. You can be demanding of them until you feel that they've done enough. They've paid back that wrong that they did to you. You see what I'm talking about? The sense of economy and accounting that goes on in relationships. But here's what I want to tell you. That to be radically generous, to be radically gracious, is not to keep any accounting in your relationships of who has done more for whom or who owes who what. You see, isn't that what Paul is doing in this story? Isn't that what we see? That he doesn't owe these people anything. In fact, if anything, he could probably say that they owe him. They owe him at least an apology. They owe him his reputation back. They wronged him. They've hurt him. Why should he do anything for them? At least not until they've made up for the wrong that they've done to him. But see, that's not how he thinks. He used to think that way. But something's changed. At the core of his being, he's now become radically generous. He's no longer keeping accounts of who has done more for who and and who owes who what. No, now he's come to the place that Jesus is talking about where he talks about giving and expecting nothing in return because that's what God did for us. He's gracious to the ungrateful and the wicked. Do you know who the ungrateful and the wicked are? Well, at least at one time in our lives, that was us the ungrateful, and the wicked. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But God shows his great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's the gospel. We were undeserving. And if God was keeping score, the, the score was like a gazillion to zero. But thank God that he wasn't going off of that score. Thank God that he he didn't give us what we deserve. He has been radically and pervasively gracious and generous to us in all of his dealings. See, to be radically generous, to be radically gracious, as Jesus calls us to be, it means that you, you don't only help people who help you. It means that you don't hold grudges. See, to be radically generous means... To live a life of giving rather than a life of taking. To live a life of self-donation. Isn't that the essence of what Jesus did for us? Giving all of himself, although he didn't owe us anything. You see, isn't that what Paul is doing here towards these people in Jerusalem? He's saying, even if it costs me my life, I will give my life and I will go and I will reach out to these people even though they haven't been good to me, even though they don't deserve anything from me. 
Where does that come from? How do, you, how do you do that? Where do you get that kind of attitude? I'll tell you where it comes from. That kind of attitude comes from a heart that is so full that it's overflowing. Like David talks about in Psalm 23 where he says, my cup overflows. That's how full I am. It's like the cup of your life, of your heart is so full that anything else that comes in in addition, it just overflows and it spills out over the brim and it touches whatever's around. You see, when you're that filled up, when you're that content, when you're that fulfilled, then you can actually live a life of radical generosity and radical graciousness. The reason why many people aren't gracious, the reason why many people aren't generous is because they're empty inside. And they're trying to fill that emptiness by keeping accounts, by proving that they really are a good person, at least better than most. But the reason God can be so gracious to us, so generous to us, is that even though we, we don't deserve it, even though we haven't earned it, the reason he can give, expecting nothing in return, is because he's absolutely, completely content and happy. You know that? That God is, he's doing just fine, right? From eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in this cosmic spinning dance in which the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and glorifies the Father and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father and the Father and the Son love the Spirit and around and around it goes for eternity and they're perfectly content and perfectly happy. You see, God didn't create the world because he was bored and he had nothing better to do. You see, God didn't create you, because, you and me because he was lonely and he needed some companionship. No, God was completely fine. The reason God created us, the reason he sustains us, the reason he came to redeem and save us was not for his sake, it was completely for our sake so that he could bring us into that cosmic dance that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit have been enjoying from eternity past. You see, he was able to do something for us because he was already full and content and ultimately happy. And to a degree, the same is true of Paul. The reason he's able to be generous and gracious is because through the gospel in Jesus, he has found that he has every spiritual blessing to the point where his heart is so full that he, he found that everything that his heart longed for, everything he legitimately needed, it was found in and through Jesus Christ. And because he is so full on the inside, he doesn't need to keep accounts anymore. He doesn't need to know who owes him. He doesn't need to prove himself anymore. He's been justified in Christ. He's been accepted by God. He's loved by God. So who cares about petty things like who owes who or who hurt who more? He's able to let those things go and his focus becomes, how can I bless how can I be a blessing to these people? What do they need that I have that I can give to bless them? See, that's where the ability to love your enemies comes from. The ability to pray for those who persecute you, this is where it comes from. It comes from a cup that is so full. When you're so full on the inside because you know that you are fully known and fully loved by God. You're fully accepted because of what Jesus did for you. When you understand that, that all the riches of spiritual blessing are yours in him, in this age and in the age to come, then your heart can overflow in generosity and grace to others because God has shown it to you. You see, many people believe that they can either be fully known or fully loved, but not both. Think about this. Because if someone was to really get to know you, they could either love you fully or they could know you fully, but not both. Because if somebody really got to know you fully, they couldn't possibly love you. See, in order for people to accept you completely, many of us believe we can't let people know us completely because if they do, they're going to find something that's not lovable. But see, the message of the gospel is that God 
both knows you completely and loves you fully at the same time. The message of the gospel is that you have been justified in Christ and therefore you don't need to work to justify yourself. And when you really understand that, then you'll be free to give expecting nothing in return like God who gives even to the ungrateful and the wicked. You'll be free to give for the sake of giving, to give for the sake of another person or for a cause with no strings attached without worrying whether or not they deserve it or who owes who more because you're so secure in who you are in Christ and you're so fulfilled in him. See, that's radical generosity. And it's what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus called us to do for others as he lives in us. And so let me encourage you today. Put your trust wholly in what Jesus Christ did for you. Even when you were an enemy of his, he treated you as a friend. And he gave everything for you. And look to that act of radical generosity that he treated you as a friend, that he gave everything to you and you will be changed and you will become like him. Secure, fulfilled, and living to give, living to bless others. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your radical generosity, your radical grace towards us, Lord. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who who hasn't ever really received that. They've never, they, they, they're still trying to prove themselves. They're still trying to earn their way to you by their actions and by their goodness. Lord, I pray that you'd show them that like Paul, they don't even realize it, but, but that's not even the gospel. The gospel, the good news is, Lord, that you've done everything for us. You've been radically gracious, radically generous. And so, Lord, may the truth of that fill us this morning to the degree that we're able to overflow in generosity and grace towards others. For your glory and for the good of our community, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.